Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Clee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, the 2nd of March, 2021. This week on the line, we have Helen Salisbury. Hello, everybody. I'm a GP at Oxford. Partha Carr. Hi, uh, Partha, a consultant in diabetes in Portsmouth. Matt Morgan. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm an intensive care consultant in Cardiff. And Nisreen Alwan. Hi, I'm Nisreen, Associate Professor in Public Health at Southampton. So we have a full house of our regular contributors. Um, and this week we have our special guest, Mary Venn. Hi, I'm a General Surgical Registrar and PhD student in London. Mary, welcome. Um, we've been watching with interest the work that you've been doing on the impact of COVID on surgery. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that work and in particular the findings you've had on the impact of COVID in terms of excess mortality. Sure. Um, so I've been working with the Central COVID Surge Collaborative team based in Birmingham. And that was because um, obviously all our clinical studies were stopped in March last year. Um, and our first study, which we closed at the end of April, showed an excess mortality in surgical patients with perioperative SARS-CoV-2 up to 24%. Um, and that was really quite stark and worrying and did support early cancellation of surgery that we saw at that time. Um, this kind of death rate in surgical patients was comparable to the severe COVID-19 patients that were requiring ITU care um, and was extremely excessive compared with death we would expect post-operatively pre-pandemic. Um, we had a, just over 50% of patients with perioperative SARS-CoV-2 with serious breathing complications, pneumonia, unexpected ventilation or ARDS, um, which had 38, 41 or 63% mortality. So that early data that was published in The Lancet in May was really useful to support cancellation, but also to work out strategies to make care safe so that we could continue surgery. And the people you were operating on, I, I, I presume, were emergency cases, so they tended to have a worse outcome than elective surgical outcomes. Um. That that's partly true that there was a there were more emergency cases in those studies, but it included elective patients as well, and it, we controlled for those factors. So even amongst low risk and minor surgery, patients had excess mortality with SARS-CoV-2. So all those factors were adjusted for, um, and that's I think why we found it so frightening, and it was so critical that we were able to share that early. And the number of patients actually cancelled, how many have we so, seen in the UK? So in the UK, it was just over half a million in the first 12 weeks. Um, but internationally, it was more than 28 million. And this was modelled with our international collaborative um, group or a group of surgeons and anaesthetists. Um, so more than 28 million in the first 12 weeks. And we didn't expect the pandemic to have so many further surges or to have such a long uh, come down. So that early modelling really does underestimate what has actually happened in terms of cancellations. We've also found that surgery picks up a lot slower than it is cancelled. And what has been the impact of this on surgical practice generally, Mary? How, how have you and your colleagues adapted to, to this new reality? 
Um, so I, th I think that between departments, trusts and countries, there have been so many differences from the pandemic, from the resources within those environments that that to say one one place has adapted in one way would be would be unfair but there is good evidence that shows what strategies we can do that are evidence-based to protect patients going forwards um so maybe we'll come to this later but vaccination will be useful to protect surgical patients we've got new data about timing we already know that preoperative testing reduces perioperative SARS-CoV-2 and postoperative pulmonary complications. COVID-free pathways, and that means uh, COVID-segregated wards, theatres and intensive care, and ideally separate hospital entrances as well, have been shown to significantly reduce nosocomial transmission. Um, and even in settings where it's not possible to segregate all of those aspects, doing one or two or whatever is possible is beneficial. Um, and in the future, the data that we have is big data. And so we're working with machine learners to create a risk calculator that will allow patients to have a little bit more personalised um, idea of their own risk perioperatively and, and that will depend on the community SARS-CoV-2 rate at the time and it will depend on what facilities that the hospital has and it will depend on that patient's own risk factors and it probably won't be perfect but it will be really important for patients to be able to be properly informed and that was another aspect we did with COVID surge that we've created patient information so that patients can have augmented conversations with surgeons. Thanks, Mary. Let me ask um, our other contributors about their thoughts on this, because what you're saying impacts on every aspect of, 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 of medical and care and public health. Matt, as an intensive care consultant, how have you experienced the impact on surgical treatments? Well, I think, you know, those figures are hugely dramatic and important for, for patients deciding what's in their best interest to go ahead with and for the staff recommending them you know the, the fascinating thing is this is such a complex area it's hard to disentangle those effects you know is it the effects of PPE on the technical side is it the direct effects of COVID on immune function wound infection physiology is it the area of perioperative management of these patients you know many probably wouldn't go to a critical care area because of the pressures at the time or the perceived risks of getting nosocomial COVID at the time. So, you know, the, the data is, is fascinating, terrifying, but is important to know what happens going forward. Um, I guess there is a subselection bias there in terms of it may well be those that went ahead with elective surgery had unmeasured confounders despite uh, trying to uh, adjust for those. You know, there may have been the illest ones, the ones at highest risk anyway, but that's not to underestimate that massive dramatic effect, really. So, so thank you for telling us all about it. Mary, tell us about that, where, where you think the excess mortality most resides, in, in the risk profile of the patient, in the perioptive care, or just as, as, as Matt suggests, maybe in the way in which surgeons and their staff have to function with all of the, the COVID-safe um, efforts? I mean, 
The, the first data that we had didn't have any evidence based on, on COVID safe. We were looking at literally perioperative SARS-CoV-2 and what happened to patients so that we could guide whether we were doing surgery or not. Um, the highest death rate was among male patients. It was among those over 70 um, and among patients with ASA 3 to 5, so underlying health problems. And undergoing a major operation, emergency surgery or cancer surgery, all led to higher death rates than the other. But even when we were controlling for all those factors, there was excess death amongst minor surgery and what we thought were low-risk patients. And is that because of nosocomial infection, do you think, Mary? Is that what's going on? Um, at that time, we didn't have testing that was reliable. So we had... we included any patient who was SARS-CoV-2 positive seven days before or up to 30 days after. Now, I say we didn't have testing and then included those. We did readjust our analysis again to look for patients that only, only patients that had a positive test and found the same as all the patients, including those that were diagnosed clinically, who were actually a relatively small number. And I think that's because we kept the inclusion criteria relatively tight so that we didn't confound all our data with um, somebody who had post-operative pneumonia and was then included as COVID because we didn't want to mislabel or, you know, misrepresent the population. Helen, given what you've heard and also probably, you know, you've been living with this anyway, what, what advice are you giving your patients if they're considering surgery? Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, there's, I think a lot of patients are in two minds. There's half of their head saying, I am so fed up with this pain. I really, really want my knee done, my hip done, whatever elective surgery they might be waiting for. But most of them are absolutely sure that they don't want to do it now. Okay, so so that they're they're simultaneously frustrated, but also both thinking, but the hospital is too busy for me, most of them. And also, and I'm still not 100% sure it's safe. Um, so I think most patients are, are waiting fairly patiently, but just so desperate for this to be, over and we also have uh, i have a large number of patients who might need surgery but haven't even had a consultation because there's been a huge impact on outpatient work as well um so they're kind of another stage behind the ones who are actually waiting for surgery so this suggests there will be a massive catch-up job um but also i mean the surgery isn't into, you know there may there may be benefits of people delaying surgery they may improve uh, without surgery and they may uh, manage fine without it in various ways. Uh, and, it, you know, mortality reduces when doctors go on strike. So <laughs> is there going to be a, an uplift of some sort? Who knows? I think who most watch? of my patients have that opportunity to, to um, improve spontaneously while they're waiting. Um. <laughs> you mean too much of that opportunity. Yeah. Partha, tell us how you're advising your um, medical and diabetes patients at this time. Um, so... I think we have had a slightly different approach towards it. I mean, there are two or three big things. I mean, we managed to keep two services running in spite of everything. Pregnancy was one of them because there's no there's no way you could stop it. And we kept the foot services running with our vascular and orthopedic surgeons. So it's been quite interesting to see the data with amputations across the board. 
there's been no rise in amputations, major or minor, across the board. Now, that's a combination of factors which you just alluded to. Uh, one is the food services running. One is the fact that people have been mobilizing less. They're at home. And there's the third bit of it, that some of the people who are the highest risk may have uh, succumbed uh, to the whole COVID and died. So there's a combination of factors there. So that's the way we are sort of going around it. Uh, I think our main challenge probably will sit in two areas. One is about the impact on the retinas because you know retinal screenings sort of peeled off and the other is kidneys. So urinary ACR checks, protein checks, and they will start to reflect probably, this being a long-term condition, you're probably looking at uh, 18, 24 months. Surgical patients are quite interesting because we are having that fine balance and I we sort of try to work with our surgical colleagues and do we bring them in earlier? Then you also know at the same time, the diabetes patients are higher risk. And so do you then push them back? Do you bring them forward? It's a real tough space to be in. So, um, you know, it's one of those things whereby we're trying to find balance and then choose our patients as we go along. Um, I suspect the impact of this, as mentioned by Mary, will be, this is a long term to come. And I think yesterday I saw something in the HSJ saying the NHS doesn't hope to catch up in any of the near future. And then if you factor in all the discussions going on around pensions, I'm not quite sure who's going to take up the extra sessions to do it. So this is going to be a very interesting time the next 24 months, I suspect. Mary, I wonder what the impact on all of this is on training for surgery. The juniors redeployed to ICU often get promised that they'll learn to do lines and instead they're doing nursing shifts, which are of value, of no doubt. But they they get frustrated and it's not predictable how many patients there are and how many of them are needed. And I think the worst thing is when they turn up and they say, I did a five hour shift and they wanted me to stay, but they had no work for me. Um, and that's really sad and disheartening. And, and they could have sort of joined the surgical take, which is run by the then surgical registrars without the juniors. And I think they get fed up with um, with doing all of the bits and pieces, but you know, it's part of the pandemic effort. So, so you crack on. I think because surgery takes such a long time to be put back into place in a safe way, the training opportunities are lost for quite a long time. Um, when we were operating in private practice, at least early on, there was a two consultant operating policy that excluded trainees. Now there is some trainees getting involved there are some trainees getting involved but um the private surgery private hospital provision is is falling now um assuming that most hospitals can resume operating where they are and and that's hard i think that changing rotors onto surge rotors with you know a few days or sometimes sometimes two weeks if you're lucky is really difficult and surgical trainees are on a 10-year training programme and that's without their out-of-programme research, etc. So you've got most people that are in their 30s, at least half of your registrars with children, with a two-week notice period on a surge rotor change. And it feels like whinging and you don't want to whinge because you're not the person on COVID ITU, but your life is still a bit tough. Hi, I'm Tom Nolan, GP and one of the regular panel members on Deep Breath In, 
the BMJ's podcast for GPs. This week, I've been getting questions from patients who have been receiving letters advising them to shield. I put some of their questions to Kamlesh Kunti, one of the researchers behind the Q-COVID risk calculator, which has been used to generate this new shielding list. Also, we talk about vaccine hesitancy and why we don't really like this term, and get some tips from Public Health England's Kevin Fenton on how we can help to reduce inequalities in vaccine uptake. You can find Deep Breath In on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Nezreen, how does this uh, play out in your neck of the woods? Well, I, I obviously think about prevention as the first thing. Um, this has been a hot topic, so hospital-acquired infection why they're happening, uh, as everybody, uh, you know, Helen and, and Mary says, and why are they happening? And I think that the hospitals um, have in large followed uh, the prevention measures are based on droplet transmission. Um, and um, they need to look at airborne transmission um, and focus on these measures, uh, you know, very much now because there's more, it's very difficult to disentangle. Um, there are some case reports of hospital acquired infections where people have tried to disentangle whether it was airborne transmission or droplet transmission, but it's really difficult uh, to do that. But I think there's mounting evidence that there needs to be consideration. I mean, uh, in terms of particularly around ventilation, um, because that's a measure for airborne transmission, um, which is difficult in hospitals uh, practically. Um, I I think there needs to be more focus on that um, now, um, including in other settings, but I think hospital acquired transmission, um, if there is airborne transmission, it's, ver- it's very difficult uh, to prevent and, and, and the measures need to be specific tar- targeting airborne transmission. Thanks, Nezreen, which brings me on to uh, the topic of, of the safety of the medical staff. Father, how are you experiencing uh, the protection of your, your teams at the moment? I don't know. I mean, I found it really quite bemusing, if I'm very honest. Uh, I've been on the wards and you know, there seems to be amongst all the juniors and the seniors, there's, you know, probably because it's 12 months in, everybody has this smile on their face when they pull out the plastic apron and you walk into a room of COVID. Everybody knows that it doesn't work. You know, I mean, if it, the plastic pinny reminds me a lot of those sheets in A&E, you know, around the, around the cubicles where suddenly it's supposed to you know, no confidentiality can ever be breached because they're soundproof and can't be seen through. This is belief. You're walking around going like, well, well, no, just because I've drawn the curtain doesn't mean I can't, nobody can hear my voice. And as I see people going off sick, uh, you know, you just wonder about it. And I think it's probably been one of the most bemusing things I've seen in my career. I'm afraid that we're we're all laughing and nodding, but it's a it's a it's not a not a laughing matter, really, is it? And we have got some data. We've got a, a, a data briefing from John Appleby this week about about staff sickness and the numbers of people who have gone uh, are off sick at the moment. Helen, one of the things that's most frustrating is the the slowness to change. There's still a huge amount of performative wiping of every surface with alcohol swabs. We actually have really very little evidence of fomite. Um, transfer of, of, of the virus. We know it is airborne. We've known for a long time COVID is airborne. And yeah, okay, there's a little bit of confusion between ventilation, as in what Matt has to do on ITU, and ventilation, as in opening your window. But there just hasn't been nearly enough um, focus on that latter thing, which I think 
we all do now know is the thing that will reduce the risk of COVID spread in, in any indoor environment. You've got to open the windows and change the air. And, and I don't think... I don't think the general public know that, and I don't think it's being put into action in all the clinical situations when it could possibly be done. Also, um, I mean, I completely agree with Helen, but I think people yeah, know more now about um, that we need ventilation, but I think there's little in terms of detail around that. Yes, we know open windows and door, but there are things and there are guidelines being developed um, all over the world around, you know, um, purification, air purification systems, how to use CO2 monitors, you know, how do you set your air conditioning systems, you know, to kind of to maximum ventilation. And um, need there's a need for more detailed guidance on that. Um, um, and that is still lacking in the UK. It also speaks to the NHS infrastructure, of course, doesn't it? You know, all of these things are dependent on buildings which are fit for purpose. And, you know, my most common place that I sit uh, before things had changed, thankfully, was on top of a bin. You know, sitting on the bins was normal uh, and that's not okay. And similarly, in terms of open spaces, in terms of windows, in terms of actual space to do your job, you know, now is the time to re-explore that NHS age and infrastructure. We were having exactly this conversation in our editorial meeting about trying to get someone to write about, um, you know, really the engineering that needs to happen in workplaces, in schools, in hospitals, in supermarkets to to change this, you know, it may be long overdue for other reasons, but certainly for, for, for the future of managing COVID, um, this is going to need to happen. It's going to be a major infrastructural change, I think. Nisreen, are you aware of anyone sort of actively working on, on that aspect of it, the societal and infrastructure change that's got to happen on ventilation? So, um, I'm aware that there are more um, guidance. I mean, just to give an example, I uh, there, there was recent CDC guidance on ventilation. It's particularly around schools, but I think it's needed for all settings. Uh, and what I did is I went round all of uh, the head teachers of my children's schools and emailed them the link to that guidance because it was very it was a straightforward, clear guidance, which I don't think we have something equivalent in the UK. Um, so so we need to make these things. Um, um, easy uh, for people to follow because they're relevant to all settings. I mean, it, it, like schools are like, I suppose, hospitals and old buildings and small windows or windows that don't open. Uh, but I think we, uh, there's a bit about the infrastructure, what we need to do, particularly for future pandemics, you know, really need to look at that. But there's a bit about in the next couple of months, what, how do we maximize um, you know, fresh air to, to reduce infection? Um, and, and that's also not happening and we haven't got time really, that needs to happen. Mary, just tell us where people can access the data that you've been talking about and also the, 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 the uh, information sheets that you've produced for patients. Uh, so it's on the Global Surge website, but the quickest way of getting there is bit.ly slash surgery COVID. bit.ly slash surgery COVID, thank you very much. And in terms of the, the, the catch-up that's going to need to happen, um, how, how, how will that unfold, do you believe? Uh, I think that the COVID secure strategies that we have got evidence on will make surgery safer. Um, if we are able to vaccinate patients preoperatively 
And we've modelled this at COVID Surge um, to show that at every age, vaccination in preoperative patients versus the general population is beneficial more than two weeks before surgery. This is especially important in patients over 70 and in cancer patients. Um, but at every age, there is benefit in terms of number needed to vaccinate um, preventing COVID death. Yeah. Can I ask, when people have had COVID, when's it safe for them to have an operation after that? Um, so the COVID surge week data that we got in October um, shows that patients who have previously tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 have an excess mortality if they are operated prior to seven weeks uh, after that infection, that positive infection. Um, if the patient remains symptomatic, it has benefit to further delay surgery until they no longer have symptoms. Um, but this is really exciting and really new and will be published on the 10th of March in Anesthesia. Um, so if we are able to wait seven weeks following SARS-CoV-2 infection or wait a little longer with patients with ongoing symptoms, we can reduce COVID death. Matt, clearly one of the issues is going to be availability of perioperative care and um, intensive care beds. And there's a report out suggesting that, that the UK is in trouble on this front. Can you... Yes, sadly, this is old news in many ways. You know, for over a decade, we know that the critical care number of beds, whatever that means, in the UK is woefully inadequate compared to the rest of Europe and many places around the world. You know, just to give you some figures in the UK as a whole, there's around seven critical care beds per 100,000 of the population. And that compares in Germany, for example, that's nearly 34 and in the US, that's 34, actually. And there's many other European countries where those numbers are a lot higher. Now, those statistics are its more complex than that, and it depends on ratios and staffing ratios and various other things. But overall, the message is fairly clear. The number of critical care beds is woefully inadequate. And what that means is that you have to target that resource to certain people. And perhaps it would be better to target that resource at people who could most benefit, such as the high-risk perioperative patient or post-emergency laparotomy. But the truth is, if you have to decide between those kind of patients and people who are on a ventilator, then you know there's only one decision you can make. I guess just one other brief thing to mention about the waiting list, and maybe this is slightly controversial to say, you know, in Wales, there'll now be half a million people waiting for surgery in Wales. It's been described as a mammoth task by the Welsh Chief Medical Officer. This may be an opportunity to think about large, well-designed platform trials. And we've seen in COVID, you know, sometimes as much as eight out of 10 COVID patients enrolled in trials, and we know that there are some surgical procedures where the evidence basis is tricky. And that's nothing against surgery. That's exactly the same in critical care where, where I work. You know, only one in 10 treatments are based on the highest quality evidence. So maybe this is an opportunity to conduct these large platform trials there. And that will probably help patients. It will help the waiting list. It will help people know what to do in the future. So maybe this is a big time to invest in, in surgical research. So randomising patients to stay on the waiting list or have the surgery? 
Well, not not so much staying on the waiting list, but if, for example, you take the example of arthroscopic surgery and degenerative knee osteoarthritis, the evidence for that is really difficult to interpret. You know, there's large meta-analyses that say it's no better uh, in terms of pain and function at one to two years than what has been called conservative treatment. Now, conservative treatment is not do nothing. Conservative treatment is investing in physiotherapy, occupational therapy, weight loss exercise programs, and perhaps rather than throwing a huge amount of resource into getting through waiting lists for that, we should invest in those other things. But before we do that, we need to know what the right answers are. Uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, uh, Matt. There's there's high value surgery and there's lower value surgery, and already we've we've removed varicose veins, for example, and that was not too difficult. Then the next stages will be um, emotive, political, and really tricky. And as you say, a- a- the evidence base is is really important. But if we can um, ascribe benefit based on quality of life, economic input, somebody who's a builder having a hernia surgery, there's a difference between that and and somebody else having hernia surgery. Um, but then you've got the patients who might end up with emergency surgery as a consequence. So uh, there's, there's so many balances to be measured, but I, I completely agree that we need to be really stringent and and coordinated between specialties to make prioritization a hospital prioritization for surgery, not just a, in my specialty, these are my gold patients that I must get through first. And we've got to be mindful that other specialties may have patients that should go ahead of us. I think this is not just surgery, but wider. I think the NHS is going to be in a position where it has to make choices, which is going to be very difficult. It's not something that the NHS is equipped to do, trained to do, or even in the mindset, quite rightly too, because it's a public healthcare system funded by the taxpayers. But we are in a situation where I think even within surgery or orthopedics, you will have to end up choosing what procedure comes above the other. A very unpalatable space to be in because the juxtaposition of that as clinicians making those choices and the pressures that primary care will face under when those choices are made, because for the person in front of you, their particular surgery is the most important surgery, quite rightly too. And then you'll have the mix with the politicians as election cycles come to a close. I think the next two, three years are gonna be really tough for people in the front line making those decisions and having to bear the brunt for it. One option, of course, would be to massively increase the funding and the workforce of the health service so that we can do all the work that we feel needs to be done. Clearly, there may be some work that we shouldn't do because it really isn't any help to anyone. And that's where the research lies in. But actually, we're quite often having to choose between really urgent need and actually something that would definitely improve somebody's quality of life. We still have to make that choice because we don't have enough resource. Uh, And I don't want us to forget that in making difficult decisions. They're difficult because there isn't enough resource. The NHS has covered itself in glory um, in many people's eyes because of the rollout of the vaccine programme. You know, do do you think that will uh, make a difference to how people how people do this? Path is shaking his head. I don't think it will make much of a difference. People forget the memory of people are very, very short. I genuinely think once the euphoria passes, once people see their problems with accessing care, the euphoria will pass quickly. 
that's my and I'm not a cynical person by nature. I know how it will work in the end uh, because at the moment, the work being done by primary care and colleagues to do the vaccinations is nothing short of amazing. Uh, it, however, will become the credit of the politicians. And when it comes out, so it will always be the case. I reckon the NHS will struggle in the eyes of the public. People always remember what happened 24 to 48 hours before, not 24 months before. That's the way, unfortunately, it works. So I'm going to put my vote and say, no, people won't remember uh, what has happened and gone through or the sacrifices made. Uh, we will go back to a lot of where we were in about, I reckon, I would give it 12 months. Mary. And I think people will get really fed up when they realise that booster is required. And I'm worried about uptake of that among everybody. Nizreen, the big event this week is the return of schools in the UK, uh, March the 8th. Uh, tell us your thoughts on the decision and the implementation of it. So, yes, very big um, step opening schools. We all want schools open. I, I think this is not controversial. Face-to-face -face teaching is important for kids because not just for education, but for social interaction um, and safeguarding, etc. But I think that we have to acknowledge that um, schools increase transmission of COVID. Um, Sage have acknowledged that very clearly, um, you know, that there's a clear temporal association between transmission rate and school closures and opening. Uh, so we know from modeling, uh, because there has been recent modeling saying school opening um, will increase our uh, likelihood to increase our uh, above one. And we've had this such modeling before, but also real data, you know, the prevalence survey, surveys we have um, point to that, the infection positivity in children uh, in December, just before, you know, at the end of the term, uh, was 2% um, for two to 10 year old and 3% for uh, 11 to 16 year old. And that was higher than any other age group above 25. Um, and we know that, um, you know, the, it, you know, when there was half time holiday infections went down. So I think the, 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 the real life data and the modeling point that schools have a big role. So what do we do now? We really need to have these strict mitigation measures in school. Very concerning um, that this might not happen. Um, and it's a positive step that uh, the government said um, face masks are now uh, recommended in secondary school classrooms. Again, you know, what does that mean in terms of um, the interpretation? Uh, but but, uh, but there's a whole loads of other measures, including the ventilation we talked about, that they need to um, come in place and it's the time is short it's the, you know and then we were talking about the vaccine you know about as a success story it, it's about outcomes you know the couple the next couple months are so important to make sure we're mostly you know most of the population vaccinated before you know there's an, a big effect of variants which are vaccine resistance um etc um so yeah very very nervous uh, a lot of us are very very nervous uh, about this and 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 also very frustrated because we we get these breaks we get these lockdowns we say from the start you know need to put infrastructure in uh to reduce transmission when things are open and that doesn't happen and then we go it's the same cycle over and over again and the decision to bring them all back in in one big bang rather than phased as in scotland yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, you know, why not, you know, some models of blended learning and staggering them and bringing them back uh, mostly. I mean, we need reduced class sizes. We need to prevent crowding in school. And that's very tricky. But also, 
it really needs resources and it needs planning. It's not easy to do and that hasn't really taken place. Matt, thoughts on this? Uh, well, it's a huge decision, of course, for children's health and for getting in society back to normal and also allowing the health service to survive. You know, the complexities of childcare of school-based ages impacts on healthcare as well. I like uh, Nisreen's adage that it's about outcomes, not about metrics, and uh, it, it's great to cheer at the logistical amazing outcomes of vaccinating people and the people involved in that should absolutely you know be applauded for that the volunteers the healthcare staff the army uh, the navy and other military people but what is important is what that results in uh, and you know we will see that in due course in time and hope that mutations for example won't uh, won't temper that and do you share Mary's concern about the, the booster and, and amongst hospital staff in particular, uh, the uptake of that second jab? Yeah, I think you've got to be concerned about the longevity of what's needed. And if things like the Brazilian variant and others uh, truly impact on vaccine efficiency, then that's uh, a, a big issue. And also for patients coming forward in these new streams that Mary's talked about, whether it's uh, cold and hot sites or whether it's selective streams you know what do we do about their vaccinations you know are we going to ask patients to ensure their vaccines are up to date in order to go ahead in these streams for example because nosocomial infection is such a big deal that's another big ethical uh, issue which we'll have to grapple with i think the other thing to think about is um vaccines won't do all the work for us and if we look at the quite staggering difference between what mortality has been like in this country, which is almost the worst in the world, and where countries have, what countries have done where they've succeeded in basically su suppressing this virus altogether. It's all about the track, trace and isolate. So while we're talking about vaccines, we don't seem to be talking enough about making that work. And in Vietnam, for example, they contacted up to 200 people per case. They did second order and even third order contacts of contacts of contacts. Um, and they just, you know, got rid of the virus that way. And as a consequence, they've had less than one death per million, where we've had 1,800 and something deaths per million population. I mean, it's just staggering. We haven't done that right. And it's really difficult to see where we'd get to that Vietnam-style system now, but we could get near it. We could make it work better. And we've got to do that in schools, I think. We've got to find the cases and make sure we, we can close down on new outbreaks or else we're going to get... A huge spread and with spread we'll get mutation and then we'll get vaccine escape. So it's kind of, you can see where it can go wrong and we really got to do something about it. And I feel as if I'm sort of, I don't know, I feel like such a stuck record talking about the need to get the test, trace and isolate working. But it's been so bad if you compare it to the countries that have done this properly. I think we all feel that, that stuck record thing. Partha? You know, the narrative, for example, has been a lot around, oh, if our population was a bit more healthy, we'd have been fine. And you go like, well, the average BMI of New Zealand, Australia is actually higher than the UK. The, the, the reason you can get better outcomes if you don't allow the, the virus in the first place and do the proper public health measures, not about what you do 
when they come in. And I think that's where the sort of nub comes through. So I think the messaging that we have out there is so conflicting. And I'll just give you one example from last evening. I was coming out, met my neighbor, was going out with her dogs. And she said, isn't it brilliant? 80% of people have been, you know, no admissions going in. It must be great for in the hospital. Really looking forward to meeting people at the end of March. And I looked at her and I said, well, no, no, there's, there's still quite a lot to do, you know. And she went like, yeah, but you guys say that, don't you? But look at the news. It's so positive. And I think we're like, oh, my God. So, but that's a inherent thing. On one hand, we are saying, right, guys, it's brilliant. BBC carries storylines quite rightly. You need some positivity about the vaccine working 80%. And the next thing is there's, a, there's actually a very dangerous variant out. and you re- So the message is so confusing for people the narrative needs to be a bit more nuanced than vaccines are working, that's it, we're done, we're out of this. And that's the worry, slight niggly worry I have at the back of my head, but who knows? Ms. Rain. Yeah, I, I, I want to touch on that because the positive narrative, we've struggled with this in public health, even before the pandemic, we seem to be the doomed people who say, you know, don't smoke and don't do this and don't do that. Because so we're talking about the negative things where, for example, the industry, they provide this positive, uh, their messaging is more positive. It's about being happy and, you know, and all of that. Um, and it's become, it's very difficult in this pandemic. I mean, recently I just, um, I think we need to have the positive angle, definitely, but we need to be realistic. I just read something by a journalist recently, basically saying that uh, us saying things about the vaccine, such as, the, you know, particularly when we first rolled it out, that we don't know if it prevents transmission. We've got more promising evidence now, but we do have no idea at the start. Uh, and, and they were saying this is such bad, pessimistic um, uh, narrative. Uh, and, 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 and um, you know, but just by saying we don't know is now perceived as pessimistic. And that's quite dangerous, I think, you know, because and that that is where, you know, part partly where we are, where we are now, because there was this false certainty right from the start about everything um, presented to the public. Um, and, and that, you know, that needs to change. I think we don't know needs to become a positive message somehow. And that's something we need to work on. Well, Nisreen, that's a fantastic segue into uh, just to give a plug for our known unknowns series. We've we've done one on testing, one on schools opening, one on vaccines. And the one coming up in a week's time on March the 11th is on zero COVID. So many of the issues that have been touched upon here will be covered in that quite controversial issue about which countries have uh, a zero COVID strategy and which countries are seeming to avoid such a strategy or even actively uh, promote an alternative strategy. So if you uh, want to join that zero COVID uh, known unknowns webinar, 11th of March. Uh, my thanks to Helen Salisbury, Partha Carr, Matt Morgan, Nisri Nalwan and Mary Ben. If you want to give views or comments on this or anything else raised during the podcast, you can do this via Twitter at BMJ Latest or email editorial at bmj.com. Goodbye, stay safe and thanks for listening.